Last Sunday morning, we talked about the fact that the world around us keeps getting darker and darker. And one of the ways we're going to talk at the end of today's message is that in the middle of that darkness, we need to let the light of Jesus shine. And obviously, this is one of the ways to do it. Every so often here at Community Alliance, we want to remind you that you're part of a larger family, not just what happens at CAC, but what God is doing around the globe in 60 to 70 countries of Christian and Missionary Alliance workers that are literally all over the globe, some of them in really incredibly difficult places. A couple of years ago, the children were raising money for the Mafrak School in Jordan for the refugees coming in, raised over $17,000 to be able to help do different levels and provide all of the equipment. In the last couple of years, I've heard more and more stories about these kids and families that are finding Christ in the middle of all of that devastation and destruction. So you're participating in that when you give to the Great Commission Fund or to Kama, which is the relief arm of the CNMA. You're making a difference in the world that you'll never be a part of or see, but it really does do a phenomenal difference. A couple of weeks ago, I was in New York, and uh, a couple of the people on the Board of Trustees that I'm with from Nyack College were in Jordan, and it was amazing, the stories of how God is revealing himself through vision and dreams to many in the Muslim world who are coming to faith in Christ. I mean, story after story after story after story. You and I can be a part of that, even though we'll never participate in it until we see it face to face. But man, what a thrill to be a part of what God is doing around the world. If you were here last Sunday morning, you obviously realize we're in the middle of two things. We're in the middle of a larger series called The Old Testament Still Speaks Today. And what we have done over the last number of weeks is look at different characters in the Old Testament to say this is not just a history book. It's not stories about Old Testament characters that are long and gone. They still have something to say to us today, two, three, four thousand years later. In the middle of that, I talked about the world in which we live last Sunday morning and painted a pretty bleak picture of what's going on around us and the darkness that we find ourselves in day after day. What happened is that I realized there's no way I could put all that information, all the other side of that, in one sermon, so it's two. By the time we get done this morning, you'll probably say to yourself, you know, you could have done four. We're doing two. Today is it. So take your sermon notes out as we pick up where we left off last Sunday morning, talking about how to stay pure, how to walk with integrity in the midst of depravity and what's going on around us. It's not hard when you turn on the news or the radio or read the newspaper to know we got a lot of strange things going on around us. The Alliance Life, which is the magazine for the Christian Missionary Alliance, it's free, you can get it and subscribe to it. Gary Friesen, who happens to be legal counsel for the CNMA, wrote an article in this month's Alliance Life saying, the world that you and I knew, and again, he's talking about the generation a, a year, a couple, three decades ago, is drastically different than the world you and I are living in today. And the whole article was, how do we respond to that? Uh, Al Moeller, who's the president of the South Baptist Theological Seminary, said, we're in a revolution, a revolution of ideas that is transforming the entire moral structure and meaning of life that has been recognized by some for a thousand years that is now changing drastically. This new belief is that biblical morality is not only wrong, it's at the very center of the conflict and dissension around the world. Christian values are committed and considered oppressive. Instead of being the foundation for life and the family, it's something that the courts, academia, and the political community no longer holds to. And it's changed and will change dramatically the culture in which we live. 
That was in this month's article. Two days after I got this, I got a note from Colson Center. Talk about them a little bit later in the message for another reason. Chuck Colson started Prison Fellowship and a number of things. Incredibly brilliant mind about how to respond to life and what's going on around us. He passed away a number of years ago. Eric Metax says has taken over and speaks a lot about that. Talked very clearly two days after we shared last Sunday morning about what's going on in Iceland as they are eliminating Down syndrome by eliminating babies about how deplorable that is. Mark Galley, editor of Christianity Today, said, it's unbelievable the things that media covers and the things that they don't. The very two leading drugs that cause thousands of deaths each year, tobacco and alcohol, are both legal and even advertised. And we talk about the heroin issue and the drug addiction that goes on with that, and it's devastating to families and friends who have been a part of it. But 40% of the domestic problems that many officers face on a regular basis are the result of alcohol consumption, and nobody talks about it. It doesn't even make sense. 3,000 abortions a day, and hardly anybody mentions it. The Robert Lee issue, ESPN, not allowing him to cover the Virginia game because his name was Robert Lee. He's Asian. Football coach in Bremerton, Washington, cannot take a knee to pray at the end of a football game because he violates the Constitution. It was upheld that he still cannot do that by the Ninth Appellant Court, which is the most liberal court in America, yet players in the NFL can take a knee in disrespect to the national anthem even while eating a sandwich if they want to. Does any of that make sense to you? No. Thank you. This week I had the opportunity to participate in a phenomenal experience. 1,030 motorcycles started in Victoria Church down in Cranberry, went all the way through Cranberry and Zillian Opal and Conoquinessing and Evans City and down through Butler and all of that. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life just to be a part of something that magnificent. We're 45 years late in paying respect to those who fought in the Vietnam War, but it was done really, really well. I grew up in that era. I grew up in that era. My draft number was 364, so I knew I wasn't going to go. I graduated in 71. The war was ending, so I didn't have the opportunity to participate. We had missionary friends that my wife's family is really close to who were killed in the Tet Offensive in 1968. So that whole era, uh, to me, was incredibly special and to be able to participate in that and give respect to these guys who were so disrespected in, in a horrible kind of way that you can imagine. They'd take their uniforms off. They wouldn't even get off the plane uniform because of what people were doing to them and how they were responding to them. So to be a part of that was incredible. The things that stood out to me was not only that 1,030 motorcycles were gathered together, which was a rush in and of itself, but just the respect that people had all the way through from every single city to every country setting all the way through to the VA and behind when everyone was there. The flags that were waved, the people that were standing there, the respect that was given, the people that brought their children, I thought was a wonderful statement of being able to help the next generation understand the price that our freedom costs for those who gave it. And then the, the soldiers that stood and saluted for the entire parade to go by. If you were in Vietnam and in the parade or watching the parade, it had to be incredibly moving. And I had the opportunity to go to the wall a couple times. It's coming down in, in 45 minutes, so i got to finish fast if you haven't seen it yet. But you've you got to experience 
something like that to be a part of it. We live in a culture that seems to be running and spinning out of control. No moral absolutes. What is right and what is wrong is only relative to the person deciding it. Everyone doing what's right in his own eyes, which is why God said in the Old Testament to judges, you're going to pay a price for this. When God says abstain, don't do it, run from it, what happens instead of running from it, we find ourselves in a world that seems to be running to it and paying an unbelievable price. We find ourselves as believers in Christ feeling like we're standing in front of Niagara Falls with a bucket trying to throw the water back up and we wonder how can it ever end and what's going to happen. What we did last Sunday morning is in the middle of all of that found ourselves dealing with an Old Testament character by the name of Noah who's found in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 in an environment that was so bad, so deplorable, so violent, so evil, God steps in and said, I'm done. I've had it. It is so bad, so awful, so immoral, so depraved. I'm done. I'm destroying the whole thing. Not just a city, not just a people group, not just one country. I'm destroying the world. In the middle of all of that, we found one guy by the name of Noah who says it found favor in the eyes of God. This is his account. A righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. That phrase is significant. Among the people of his time. What are the people like of his time? So bad that God wants to destroy them all. Among the people of his time, he walked with God. He did everything God commanded him. In chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did all that God commanded him. I found myself last Sunday and a few weeks ago when I was putting this together, asking the same question that I ask you. How did he do that? I mean, how do you do that? How do you live with that much integrity that the God of the universe notices you in the middle of all the depravity around you, so much so that he wants to destroy it all, but you, my friend, you, you stand out in the middle of all of this. How on earth did he do that? And the larger question is, how can I? Because I feel like I'm living in a world that's spinning out of control. I'm living in a world that things keep getting worse and worse and worse. With so much depravity that changes every day, that seems to get worse every day, that makes less sense every day, how do I, as a follower of Christ, maintain my integrity in a world that's spinning out of control? I asked some questions. One is in your sermon notes this morning. Where is it hardest for you to maintain your biblical values? Where is it hardest for you to maintain your biblical values? Work, school, at a party, at home, alone, on vacation, in front of your TV, in front of the computer. Where is it hardest for you? Where is it hardest for me? I had asked myself the same question. To continue to maintain my integrity, especially when I walk in front of people every single Sunday and stand up here declaring the truths of God's word. Where do I struggle with this? I shared and prayed with the elders this morning. I struggle with some of this stuff. So I'm inviting you into a journey with me, not saying I'm better or different or I've got it licked or mastered. I'm just saying, this is stuff we've got to honestly assess and evaluate and be honest about where we are and what changes we need to make in a world that is not going to get better, only worse. Anybody got a Bible? You got a Bible? I'm going to say it at the end and I'll do it again today. I, I, I read the end of the book. Anybody read the end of this book? It doesn't get better. It only gets worse. And then it will end. So what are we going to do? How are we going to live? What are we going to do in the midst of all of that? These are questions I've got to ask myself because I'm going to stand before God and you and I are both going to stand before God. How do I live the life he's calling me to? 
Can't pick up where we left off last Sunday morning or put it all together, but from what I understand this week, it is on Facebook. I did not know that till this week. Our services are on Facebook. 800 people last Sunday morning watched last week's service that weren't in our service. I didn't know that. So can they go backwards, Jay? Okay, so you can go backwards and catch up. What I want to talk to you about today is I'm going to pick up and share some of these things and then finish the insert that you have in your bulletin this morning about ways that we can deal with the environment around us. One is obviously, as we had last Sunday morning, we got to quit blaming our environment. We've got to take responsibility for who we are regardless of what's going on around us. We can't blame our wives when we stray because they're not attractive enough and our husbands when we stray because they're not romantic enough. Every bad decision starts with a bad decision. Every addiction starts with making a bad choice that continues to move on down that direction until it gets worse and worse. We can't blame our dad or our mom. They may have been the problem. We can't say how difficult or blame how difficult it is at work or at school. It may be incredibly hard. We can't keep blaming others when we stray from godly principles. We've got to decide, what am I going to do? How do I respond? We've got to quit blaming Trump. We've got to quit blaming Obama for everything. Number two, choose our environment wisely. Do not put yourself in difficult situations. You got to make wise choices when it comes to that. Now, there are times that you can't control that, and I get it. But when you're going down the road at 103 miles an hour saying, God, protect me, he bailed out. He's, God is not your co-pilot at that point. In every other environment, we can't go thinking, well, we'll, we'll be okay. I got to make wise choices. Is that move, is that promotion worth the impact that it's going to have on you or your family? It may be incredible. It also may put you in a place where I've got to make some tough choices and hard choices that pull me down a track I don't want to go. Decisions about college have an enormous impact on your future. We can't base it based on the prestige of the diploma. We've got to base it on am I a follower or am I a leader? Because if I'm a follower, I've got to really make a solid decision about whether or not I'm going to send my kids or I'm going to a secular college because I'm telling you, it's going to take me down the track. I don't want to go down. If I'm a leader, you can make a difference. You can be the Joseph and the Daniels and the Noahs and the Esthers. But you've got to be honest with yourself that if I'm a follower, then I've got to be really wise about the decisions that I make. And I've got to find some people who help me through that process because i got to know myself well enough to know the impact that it's going to have on me. Choose your friends wisely. Friendships determine the quality of your life. Do not be misled, Scripture said. Bad company corrupts good behavior. Trying to fit in without going along is a tough line to define. But if you do it and do it wrongly, the results can be catastrophic. One bad decision can change the rest of your life. And dating relationships. Date people who believe what you believe. And there are exceptions to every story. I've been in it long enough to know that what I have seen, just from my grid, what I have seen is that more people who confess Christianity are drawn away from Christ by dating people who are not believers in Christ than they draw them into Christ. Is it opposite of that? Absolutely. Do I know gals and guys who have won their non-believing friends to Christ when they've dated them and brought them to church and brought them to Jesus? Absolutely. What I have noticed is the opposite in the overall aspect of that. Well, that's good for you to say. You've been married for 44 years. You've got kids who love Jesus and marry great guys. Totally get that. 
But you do know that limits the dating pool. Yep, I do. But do you know there's a whole lot worse things than being married to the wrong person? Number four, commit to God's standard. Make a commitment to God's standard. Psalm 119, how can a man keep his way pure? That's an honest question. That's a great question. How can an old man, me, I'm an old man, how can an old man keep his way pure? Living according to God's word. One of my favorite verses in high school and all the way through life is in Daniel 1.8. It's in your notes. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Daniel said, I'm not going to do that. This 16, 17-year-old kid living in Babylon who said, I'm not going to do it. It's all there in front of him. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let it, I'm not going to let that determine who I become. I made a commitment to God's standard. Moses in 11, Hebrews 11 in your notes, by faith, Moses, he grew up in Egypt. Man, he had it all. He was living in the king's palace. Everything he could have ever wanted was there. But he refused to do that. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin. Man, you got to underline that if you have your Bible. For a short time. Sin's fun. I'm like, let's be serious. It can be fun. I'm not that dumb, naive. The flip side of that is destruction and death. And it's a real short time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's God's will that we be sanctified. It is God's will that we be sanctified, which means set apart for Him. Which means, God, you got me all. Every part of me, my mind, my eyes, my heart, my, my passions, my, all of me, you've got it all. That we should avoid sexual immorality because he knows that's one of the strongest drivers. Every one of you should be in control of his own body that's honorable and, and, and holy, not in that passionate lust like the heathen. And in that matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of them. God called us not to be impure but to live a holy life. And anyone who rejects that instruction doesn't reject man. It's not you're saying, okay, pastor, it's fine for you, but I'm not listening to you. He said, you're rejecting God who gives you his Holy Spirit. What you and I have to decide, when I decide I'm going to be a follower of Christ, I've given my life to Jesus, what you and I have to decide is now that I have made that decision, how am I going to live the life that he's called me to? As a believer, how am I going to live? How am I going to live the life that God's called me to, by his standards or not? They're pretty black and white. They're all the way through the word of God. Am I going to live my life according to that or do my own thing? Well, I've heard all kinds of stuff through the year. Well, pastor, we're just living together for financial reasons. We have to, but God knows our hearts, and he knows in his eyes we're committed to each other, and that's all we need to do, right? No, it's not. Why not try this? Do the right thing. Get married. Live according to God's standards and see if he doesn't supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Just try it. It works. You and I have to continue every single day of our life to make good decisions and every time the challenge is in front of you, you've got to make a good decision. How many of you are into, you know, workouts and, you know, weight, whether it's weightlifting or push-ups or whatever, right? Any of you do that on a regular basis? Two of you? Okay, that says a lot. No. <laughs> Coach, come on, Eric. I mean, I know you do that. Kids buff, got it all shaped and, and all this stuff. You know, when you go to the gym, you don't just do one push-up and say, well, that's good. I'm done. I'm ready. I'm buff now. I got it, man. 
You just got to keep doing it over and over again to get stronger and stronger and stronger, right? Right, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. And the more you do that, the stronger you get. It don't just do it once. Oh, I made a good decision today. I'm good for the rest of my life. No, every single day you're going to be challenged. Every single day you're going to be challenged. And what you and I have to decide, are we going to make the right choice, do the right thing, and make the right decision when that temptation is in front of us? And Genesis 39 is an incredible story of Joseph. He's in the king's palace, got it all, everything's in his hands. And the king's wife sees him and said, dang, that's a good-looking kid. And she said, why don't you come to bed with me? What's fascinating is verse 10 in chapter 39 when it says she did this day after day after day. So it's not a one moment in time, one temptation, one issue, day after day after day after day, but it refused to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So you need to understand all of this stuff, all, everything we're doing in this Old Testament series, the mistakes and the good things, great decisions and bad decisions, are all, he says, given as examples to us so that we understand how to live the life God's calling us to. No temptation has seized you except that it's common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But when you're tempted, he'll always provide a way out so that you can stand up. So you and I have to decide, will I commit to God's standards or not? Manage your mind, number five. Manage your mind. Take every thought captive. In Corinthians, I mean, you know this. You said it to your kids, garbage in, garbage out. Right? The more junk you take in, the more it's going to happen. And in many cases, you don't have a whole lot of control over the stuff that you get bombarded with on a regular basis. But the stuff you do, you've got to recognize the impact that it's going to have on you. Some of the stuff comes at us every day. All kinds of things that we don't have a lot of control over. The things we do, we've got to take responsibility for what we see. TV, internet, social media. I've got to make smart choices and recognize what I'm letting it do to me. I, this is hard to believe, but I'm a little ADAD, ADAD, ADA, okay? So I want to see the weather, and the weather is under one of my favorites. So I go on a computer, my favorites happen to be with Bing, and Bing has 37 articles underneath it or 23 articles underneath it, and I want to look at one of them. By the time I've got to the 34th article of the 35, when I only wanted to look at one of them, I forget why I went to the Internet to begin with. And then so you push one, you go on one, and then all of a sudden it says this little thing on the side, Asian girls are looking for you. How do they even know where I'm at? <laughs> you know it as well as I know it. That's what it does, right? And so what do you do with that? What do you do with that sidebar? What do you do with that thing? What do you do with what you see? There's so much stuff that we don't have control over. What do we do with what we see? We cannot let Facebook and the media define who we are. We're incredible children of the king of the universe. We can't let Facebook or what we see or what someone says about us define who we are. It is an incredible tool. But so many people, and I battle with people's view of me nonstop. So I get it. But we can't let it define who we are. Dave and I were talking this week about this very fact, and I said, do me a favor. Go on to one of your Facebook posts and just find out. Just give me two examples, one or two examples of what people comment on. So he wrote me Friday night and said, I got two. My wife put a picture of the cake she made me for my birthday, and I got 86 comments. Put another picture of my kids sitting on the cow at King Cone. We got 87. I said, how many did we get on our Facebook page last Sunday morning about the sermon? He said, 11. 
Isn't that kind of weird? I got two emails and two texts about last Sunday's sermon. That's all. Do you not think I wrestle with people's view of me and how I'm perceived and how I'm doing? Absolutely. And every single day I've got to decide who is going to define who I am and what I do and how I do it and all of that. Almighty God or Facebook or vice versa. The list is endless. Number six, you've got to manage your marriage. Manage your marriage. <laughs> You're going to find it's hard to believe. There are people out there who work harder on their cars, gardens, hobbies, and careers than they do in their marriage. None of you. But is it surprising that there are people out there who work harder on their careers, their hobbies, their cars than on their marriages? We put guardrails up on a highway to keep us from driving off the cliff. We ought to do the same with our lives and our family at times. We need men who are willing to put an arm around their sons or daughters and give them some really strong guidance on showing them how to love their mom, how to treat a woman, how to be a person of character and integrity, how to talk about intimacy, how to say, watch how I love your mom. Watch how I treat your mom. Watch how we deal with conflict. How we fight fair, how we deal with the issue, how we try to resolve it instead of getting angry and destroying one another with words. We've got to build some safeguards into our families, especially to the next generation, because they're watching what we do and how we live the life that God is calling us to. A study that came out a few years ago that somebody sent me the stats to, and it's called Good News About Marriage, written by a girl named Shanti Feldman. She had heard all along that 50% of marriages fail inside and outside the church. And she said, is that true? She said, I actually couldn't find the research. So she went on an eight-year study, wrote her thesis about it, and found out, number one, it's not true. It's really like 31 to 34%. The fascinating thing that she found out is in the church, it's only 15 to 20%. Not 50 like we've been hearing forever. Which, you know what that means? It means biblical Christianity works. By applying godly principles, they work. God's word is clear. You know and I know that if we do what he says and live according to his word, we will do everything we possibly can to have a great marriage, to have a great life, and to be able to pass on to the next generation what we want them to emulate and what we want them to follow. Number seven, obviously, you've got to magnify the consequences of sin. I love the message version of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 6 where it says adultery will cost a man everything he has is way more than alimony. This is what the message says. Adultery is a brainless act, soul-destroying and self-destructive. There's a commercial that I've seen every once in a while about insurance fraud of all things, and it's a guy taking his girl to school and she's not able to look at him because he cheated on insurance. And I get that. Can you imagine having to look to your son or your daughter and say, this is what I did? We've got to understand the consequences and have a clear understanding. Paul said, look, can we be forgiven? Absolutely. First John 1, 9, you come, confess, he'll cast it as far away as east is from the west. But he goes on to say, look, can I just give you some real clear advice? Don't you keep taking advantage of God's sin or of God's grace and continue to sin. Those don't go together. I can't keep continuing to take advantage of God's grace, knowing he's going to forgive me because I come and ask, and continue sinning over and over again so that I can come to him and ask. Don't dare take advantage of God's grace that way, Paul said. You'll pay a price. I'll pay a price. Eight, guard our relationships, put some safeguards in our life. 
We teach our children, children about an escape plan when there's a fire, you know, which wind is to go to, where to meet, which, where the ladder's going to go. We teach them not to touch hot stoves, don't play in the street. What are we doing in this area? How are we putting some safeguards around our life and our relationships? Whether it be don't travel alone if possible, don't be alone with the opposite sex, talk positively about your mate. One of the worst things in a conversation with someone of the opposite sex, say this phrase, man, I wish my wife was more like that. Oh, my lands, did you open the door? I wish my husband was more like you. Oh, my goodness. The door you just opened is unbelievable. He's going to run, the Satan will run through that with a semi-truck and unpack it all in one sitting. Get into accountability groups, number nine. Life groups, uh, men or women triads, but be really honest. We've got a series called The Conquer, really good series. And uh, there's some cards out there, some just the little cards. John, hold one of those up. They just, they just look like that. And you just simply take it and get a hold of Jim. It's not one of those, hey, yeah, I, I struggle with that. And you're going to run around saying, hey, you're going to want to be as subtle and quiet. And I get that. But not dealing with it is much, much worse. And Jim will get you in one of those triads and the ability to help. But you've got to find some people who really understand how to keep you accountable and maintain that accountability. But you've got to be honest because I'm telling you, accountability groups, they only know what you're telling them. Number 10, you've got to limit or eliminate the input, whether that be TV, computer, magazines, Sports Illustrated, Swimsuit Edition, like who needs that in their house uh, kind of thing. Maybe some things you need to eliminate, HBO, Stars. Cinemax, R-rated movies. I'm telling you, when, you know, on the info thing, you've got, it tells you what, the, what it's rated. And if you see the N, nudity, it's in PG-13 stuff now I see every once in a while when I look at that info thing. You've got to determine what I'm going to do with what I see. And with what I see is going to impact me, then I've got to say, then I'm not going to have it. I'm not going to have it in my home or in my, my listing of options in front of me, whatever that may be. You have to answer that question in your sermon. What does that mean for you? What does it mean for you in your life? What, what do I not have? What do I not watch? What do I not have in my home? What, do I not, what blocks do I have on my phone? Whatever that may be. What blocks do I have on my computer? What people in my life? There is a fascinating article that somebody gave me a few weeks ago and sent to me. Gene Twinge is a psych professor at San Diego State written two books called iGen and the Me Generation. She did a research study on, on the smartphone. What I have out there for you this morning is a Breakpoint article that I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the sermon that's this size, about eight or ten pages. The art, I can send you the other articles, 24 pages. What she found is that there's an incredible shift that is taking place in the mindset of our society and especially our children today as a result of the smartphone. You watch all the graphs, and it's unbelievable what happened after 2007, how it's just dropped off. In 2012, there was such a dramatic shift. She said, researching generations for, since 1930s, I've never seen anything like it. It was the exact moment the proportion of Americans who owned a smartphone went beyond 50%. The rate of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It is not an exaggeration to describe iGen as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades, much of it traced to their phones. Eighth graders who are heavy users of social media are at risk 27% 
by having the risk of rate of depression concerned or opposite of those who go outside, play, go to church, or even do their homework. In 2011, for the first time in 24 years, the teen suicide rate was higher than the homicide rate. 57% more teens are sleep deprived in 2015 than in 1991. The correlations between depression and smartphone use are strong enough to suggest that more parents have to say to their kids, put the phone down. Little kids having smartphones do not make any sense to me at all. I don't care if everybody on the planet has one but you and your kids. It does not make sense. What you're doing is opening a door that you will not be able to close. The article, we ran off hundreds of them back there. They're with you or in the, on the lobby. You can read it for yourself, but I'm telling you, we've got to make some really strong decisions and, and discussion on that issue. Number 11, finally, spend time with God in prayer and in his word. Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart. Submit yourselves, he said in James, to God. Resist the enemy and he'll run from you. Come near to God. He'll come near to you. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Noah did everything that God commanded. The fascinating thing about that is, how did he know what that was? Didn't even have a Bible. There are 100 million Bibles sold every year. The average American home has four. It's available in over 90% of the world's population. It is in front of us and around us and with us every day of our life. We've got to be in it. If we want to keep according to God's standards, if we want to live our life purely as he would say, if I really want to hide his word in my heart that I might not sin, then I've got to be in the word. It's simple as that. I've got to be in the word. Instead of jumping around and all this stuff that I'm looking for, i got to be in the Word. What I have to decide in light of the ocean of immorality around me, what changes do I need to make? Where do I need God's direction? Where do I need to ask for forgiveness? As the world gets darker and darker, we've got to shine brighter and brighter. And the only way that we can do that is decide how am I going to live in light of what I know in light of what's going on in the world, in light of the fact that I read the end of the book and it doesn't get better, it only gets worse, what kind of life do I need to live? And how do I want to let my light shine to the next generation, to the next generation, to the children who follow me, to the ones that I influence, to the people that I stand in front of every week? How do I want to live the life that God is calling me to? Incredible verses in Peter that is in your sermon notes. Look, you need to understand it's awful out there, which is what he's saying. In light of all that, there's going to come another point where God said, I'm done. It's enough. It's over. I'm destroying it all. And then he asked the question, in light of that knowledge, which is why Corinthians said, look, I've written all of this so that you can know how to live the life that God has called. In light of what happened to Noah, in light of what happened to the world at that time, Peter says, in light of what the fact that it's going to happen again, and I've read the end of the book, it doesn't get better, it only gets worse. What do I need to do different? Where do I need to change? What is God asking me to do? What I'd love for us to do this morning is just to do it together. What do I need to admit? What do I need to quit? There are so many resources. We've got Silver Ring thing coming up October the 8th. I think there's a slot in your bulletin, tons of them out here that helps with the issue of moral purity, sexual purity for kids, and all of those kind of things, all other kinds of resources to help us make wise decisions with the flood of negativity and immorality that's going on around us. 
What is it that God is saying? Dan, you got to quit doing this. you got to quit seeing that. you got to quit saying that. Whatever that may be, what about you? Dave and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, and there was a song that came through that we'd heard a couple of times called Come to the Altar. And I said, hey, at the end of this, let's just quietly play it behind me and, 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 and you and Pam sing it. I grew up in a context where there literally was a physical altar. It was a piece of wood, and people would come to it, and they'd kneel at it and confess their sins and talk to God about some of the issues they struggle with. And I love that. But it's not limited to a physical altar or a piece of wood or someplace that I come and kneel. I can do that here. I can do that where you're sitting, and I get that. But what I'd love for you and I to do this morning, we're, we're, this is it. We're moving on to another subject next week, is to say, God, what does all of this mean for me? Let me just come to you and say, what do you want me to change? What do you want me to do different in light of what I hear this morning? And if we're really honest, we all knew all this stuff that I said today. But what, what is it that I need to do? I'd love for you to literally come forward and pray. We'll pray with you. I'd love to do that. But while they're singing, do some introspection. Whether it be to come and pray, pray where you're at, seek God's face. What do I need to do with what I know? How do I live in light of what's going on around?